Dan. Thank you, Dan. Team, can we just encourage our music team this morning for the great job they did in leading us? Yes. And worship. And uh, while we're at it, let's give it up for our Redemption Kids team while our kids head back. Um, parents, if you're a new parent, uh, feel free to escort your kid down to the room. And, and if you're just first time seeing that, we welcome you to do so. Um, and the rest of uh, you big kids can open up to the book of 2 Samuel today. We're going to be in chapter 13. And uh, as you turn there, I just want to welcome everyone back uh, from, you know, summer, summer schedule, summer plans. Uh, college students are back in the house. Welcome back, college students. And uh, can I just say, not to give like an, a mini sermon, but uh, I believe God is doing something on the campus of Tufts University, just like he's doing something in the city of Boston. And so, uh, listen, if you pray, and I hope you do, uh, let's pray for Tufts and let's pray for uh, our college students who are uh, on the campus and, and being light in a difficult uh, environment. Uh, it's awesome to see what God's doing. I, I try to make it a habit uh, roughly once a week just to make it to the, I mean, check this out. You want to know, you want to see a sign of, here I go, many sermon. You want to see a sign that God's up to something on the campus of Tufts? Who knew that every morning at 7.30 a.m. students are gathering to pray? Come on. That's what I'm talking about. That is what I am talking about. So that is, that is good news. But welcome back, college students. Um, welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is going to be uh, an exciting month uh, for us as a church as we uh, begin this new series today in fall kickoff and college launch afterwards. Student ministry, it kicks off tonight. It's something we've prayed about. Yeah, you can give it up for that too. We have middle schoolers and high schoolers uh, in our midst and uh, this is a big step for us as a church to uh, begin a student group on Sunday night. So if you know any middle school or high schoolers, uh, encourage them to be a part of that as well. Um, and then at the end of the month on September 30th, we're going to have a baptism Sunday, predominantly just uh, stories and seeing people uh, take that uh, step of baptism, uh, signifying that they follow Christ. Amazing Sunday when we have uh, baptisms at Redemption Hill. And then uh, in October, uh, circle the date on your calendar, October 21st is our anniversary Sunday. And uh, that is going to be our seventh anniversary as a church in Medford. Amazing to see what God has done. Uh, so thankful for what he's up to in our city and in our church. And listen, if you're new or somewhat new, never filled out a Connect card, feel free to do that even as I begin uh, the message today. We'd love for you just to let us know who you are. We love to put names with faces because God loves people and so do we. Um, so if you would take a minute to, to, to fill that out, tear it off, only take you a couple seconds and you can drop that in the, bo the box uh, on your way out today. Well, today we are starting our Today series. And we're, we're looking at uh, culturally relevant topics and realities that we need to address as the church. And this Today series is born out of a belief that because God is real and Jesus is alive, not dead, but raised from the dead, then every topic under the sun, every college uh, conversation, even that you might have on a college campus or, you know, in the workplace, maybe talking about op-ed articles in the New York Times, like whatever it may be, the Christian worldview speaks into it. 
And only does it speak into it, but we believe that it speaks into it with a greater accuracy and benefit than any other worldview has to offer. You say, well, like, Tanner, that sounds arrogant. Like, I don't even know you, and here you are, like this arrogant pastor. Okay, like, hopefully that does not come from a place of any arrogance, but of humble confidence in conviction. I mean, if God is real and Jesus is alive, then, then surely we would expect that his truth would permeate every second of every aspect of our lives. Now, granted, uh, we're, we're, we're going three weeks into this Today series, and as you might imagine, we can't cover every topic we would love to cover. And so I would just even as a FYI remind you that last year, this time, we covered the topics of racism, civility, technology, and sexuality. You can go online and catch those sermons if any of those interest you. But in this three-week series, we're going to look at the topic of fake news in two weeks. Then next week, we're going to cover the reality of addiction, a major epidemic in our land. We're going to focus on substance abuse. But what we say about substance abuse will have relevance for any addiction from food to sex to smartphones. And so I just encourage you to invite friends. Like, we're going to not just talk about it. We're going to pray about it. We're going to pray for people in our church. But today we're going to cover the tragic reality of abuse in our land. And we're going to focus on sexual abuse. Probably everyone in the room is aware of that of Alyssa Milano's tweet last October, where she simply said this, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, Write me too as a reply. Her tweet popularized a a movement that was started 10 years earlier by Tarana Burke, uh, who who, uh, had this idea to say, if you've been saying, me too. And when Miss Milano woke up the next morning, there were more than 12 million Facebook reactions in 24 hours, and then also a million tweets of the hashtag MeToo in 48 hours. Powerful and successful women courageously step forward to tell their stories, breaking the burden of their silence and at the same time incriminating men that needed to be brought to justice. Men like Matt Lauer, the co-host of NBC's Today Show. Men like film producer Harvey Weinstein, who was an acclaimed Oscar-winning film producer, but then was accused of sexual assault by 80 women. 80 women. Men like Larry Nassar the USA Gymnastics National Team doctor who was accused by 175 young women, most who were little girls or teenagers. Wow. In one of the victim statements, 
in Nasser's trial, a young woman by the name of Kyle Stevens said this to Mr. Nasser. Let me remind you of the interest of a six-year-old girl. My favorite TV show was Clifford the Big Red Dog. I could not do a multiplication problem, and I still had not lost all my baby teeth. I think we can all agree that someone of this maturity level should not be sexually active, but I was. One of the greatest outcomes of the Me Too movement is that the reality of sexual abuse has flooded into our cultural conscience as well as our Christian conscience. Because you see, we can sometimes, we're really, sometimes we're really good at this. Like we try not to be at Redemption Hill. We try to be humble. We try to be introspective. But, but sometimes the church can be like the people that Jesus derided in the Gospels who were more pharisaical, pharisaical and self-righteous, and we lob stones at all of these other people while we ourselves are ignoring the issue and at times, even worse, sweeping it under the rug. But the Bible paints a better picture of how we should respond today. And so in every case, let me make crystal clear. We say with God, enough is enough. Enough is enough. What are we going to do? Let me just ask you this, and I'm just asking myself this. And let me just get really honest. Let me be vulnerable this morning, okay? Here's the deal. You know, college students are back. Everyone's back. Like, you can look back at our history as a church. Like, we're, we're not stupid, all right? Like, sometimes we probably are. But, like, you know, it's like, you know, you, you, you make strategic decisions. Like, you just, the fall kicks off. You start a new series. You start a new series that hopefully people will be interested in. You want them to be interested because you want them to come back because, you know, Jesus has something so much to offer them, right? And so the temptation for a pastor is, like, choose subjects so that, you know, like people will come back. And if that's the result, at one level, who cares? Who cares? And this is what I mean. The greater prayer today, the greater hope today, is that we would be moved to respond, moved to do something about it, perhaps even for you. Uh, listen, as it will, the statistics show that someone, not just someone, someone's people in the room today have been affected by abuse and, yes, sexual abuse. And so my prayer for you today is that you would find freedom, you would find healing, you would find hope today. That's why I stand before you here today. God, do it. Please, Lord, do it. And so the invitation then, the invitation is to fight to end sexual abuse with the hope and healing found in Jesus Christ. I hope you're in on that. Like, you don't have to write that down like, to remember it, right? But like, 
Hope you're in on that with me. Let us fight to end sexual abuse with the hope and healing of Jesus. Now, let me just say a few things to level set our uh, time together, okay? Number one, uh, I cannot do justice nor cover every form of, of abuse. So listen, if you have been abused physically, verbally, domestically, emotionally, as a child, spiritually, financially, and the list goes on and on. I'm speaking to you today as well. We care because God cares about every form of abuse. Number two, while the focus will be on women, this does not negate the fact that men are abused as well and also sexually abused. Then number three, let me just say this. There's a proverb in the Bible that really helps me in life. It helps me even have some freedom because I stand before you today, a weighty topic, and, and, and I've been even just praying. This is a great way to pray, right? Because when God changes us, he changes everything about us, not just our thoughts, not just our words, not just our actions, but even our emotions. And so I've been just praying, like, God, give me the heart of Christ. Give me the emotions of Christ. Help me to feel as Jesus would feel if he were talking about this topic. And that said, the proverb says this, the heart knows its own bitterness. And no stranger shares its joys. Proverbs 14.10. And so listen, if, if, you, if you have been down this tragic, horrific road, I just want to say to you, I cannot begin to understand what you have gone through. I've actually had an instance in my life when we first moved here that, that definitely bordered a, a, a line on sexual harassment. It's just out of nowhere. But I wouldn't assume that I could begin to understand what you've been through. And so how do we, how do we address this? I want, I want to help us wrap our minds around the reality, the, the prevalence of this, this heinous, Crime against people, first and foremost. And then I want to look at the destructive effects from sexual abuse. And then finally, I want to move towards some resolution, how we can respond in very practical and concrete ways. So number one, uh, let's fight to end sexual abuse because of its heinous prevalence. Okay? Fight to end the heinous prevalence of sexual abuse. What, what is abuse? And you say, like, Tina, it's so prevalent, and it's like, what are, we, what are we even talking about here? Like, even, it's like one million retweets. Like, what were those retweets about? Justin and Lindsay Holcomb, in their excellent book, Rid of My Disgrace, defined sexual abuse and assault as this. Here we go. Sexual assault is any type of sexual behavior or contact where consent is not freely given or obtained and is accomplished through force, intimidation, violence, coercion, manipulation, threat, 
deception, or abuse of authority. And so just as you process that, we're saying like, this can be physical, verbal, or psychological. Any case where there is sexual behavior that violates the well-being of another person. And what is, what is the reality of abuse in our land? Let me just help you wrap your mind around it. One in four women. One in four women. And one in six men. Study show. It's one in six men. Men, I'm asking and praying for you to be courageous as well, to receive help as well. If you've held on to this alone, and certainly for the women as well. Can we shut that door? Thank you. And I know what you're thinking, like, hey, what study was that? Well, like, where'd that research come from? And I mean, some studies would say one in ten. But many people, listen, many people would say that one in four and one in six is probably not high enough. And why is that? It's because there is so much underreporting when it comes to the reality of sexual abuse. One in six women, one in six have been or will be raped in America. I don't even know what to do with that. But if you want to talk about underreporting, amongst college women, only 12% report abuse and rape, even rape, to the authorities. And so listen, this is a huge issue. This is a huge problem. The church needs to speak about it. We need to wrap our minds around it. We, we need to wrap our hearts around it. And it wouldn't matter if it was one in 20 or one in 100. We need to fight to put an end to the heinous reality of abuse in our land. And so, as we will see, this, this, this is not a new phenomenon. 3,000 years ago, there's a story in the Bible, and there's actually one thousands of years before it, that show us that this is not a new phenomenon. I want to share a story with you from 2 Samuel chapter 13, and it's going to guide our discussion from here on out, that paints a tragic and horrific picture of sexual abuse and assault. I want to read the first two verses, make a couple comments, and then I'll read through verse 22. Here we go. Here we go. God, help us understand your word and respond. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Loved, check out the quotation, loved her 
And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So just like to be very clear, okay, uh, Amnon and Tamar share the same father, King David, but had different mothers. Verse 3, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat. And prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king, king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother's Uh, her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar, took the cakes she made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she. He violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. 
And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. I'm sure you followed the story very carefully. Amnon has lustful desire for his virgin half-sister Tamar, which are two transgressions against the legal code of Israel. Number one, no sexual advances toward a virgin. Number two, no relations with a family member. But he's dominated by this overwhelming sense of evil desire, so much so that he can't figure out a way to to get her into his presence, so he employs the help of his crafty friend, Jonadab, who says, hey, just pretend that you're sick and you know, uh, manipulate and and take advantage of the relationship you have with your father and suggest that Tamar brings you some food. And when she brings you food, there's your moment. And like everything is going according to plan until verse 12. When he grabs hold of her in Tamar, the text is very careful to tell us that four times, four times she says, no, 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 don't do this thing. It would be outrageous in Israel, it would dishonor me and it would dishonor you. And if you have a question about what she says in uh, verse 13, that speak to the king and, and he will not withhold me from you, that's certainly just a, a ploy to buy some time to get out of there, right? I mean, we hope that the king wouldn't, of course, allow such a thing, but, but Tamar is grasping for her life. She's looking for any solution that she can find to get out of there, to be free as she is in his clutches and he will not let her go. And because he was physically stronger than her, he, in the words of verse 14, violated her. You can translate that. For us, Amnon raped his sister, violating her to the very depths of her being. And placing a scar in her soul that time would not erase. Now, let me say just a couple of things about this story so far. Number one, 
Amnon's love, as it says in verse 1, is nothing but pure and evil self-love and hatred toward Tamar. You see, the essence of love, and this is what's so beautiful about the love of God, is that love pours out for the benefit of someone else. But but Amnon has no concern for her. He has concern for himself. And so in a vicious act of self-love, he lusts after her to the point that he brings her in and violates her. This is, this is objectification of a woman at its height. This is, this is wanting a woman only for her beauty and the pleasure that she might be able to offer you. And that is sick. We see how he's done this because after the sexual act, he, he refers to her as this woman. Like, there's, there's, he, he's not even treating her before or after the incident as a person. And, and this is exactly what sexual morality really is at its core. When we lust, man or woman, when we lust after a man or woman, we are, listen, desouling that person. Desouling them. We are, we are treating them as if they do not have a soul, a mind, a heart, desires, affections. And even, even more, like what, what makes this so heinous, all right? Number two, what makes this so heinous is that this is not simply a crime, okay? This is a violation of her humanity. You say, Tanner, why is that? Well, I can just speak from a Christian worldview. I don't know what other people would say and how they would get there, but I think they would get there without the power of the biblical worldview. You see, we are made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. This means that every person has worth, has dignity, has value that should be honored, protected, loved, and served. And I just want to say, I just want to say today, God says every person in the room is valuable. God says you are valuable. No matter what you have done, no matter what has happened in your past, God is saying you have value, you have dignity, you have worth. This should never be disrespected or tainted in any way. To violate someone's sexuality is to desecrate something God has declared sacred. 
That's what's going on here. That's the heinousness of sexual abuse and sexual assault. And I would just say, like, if you're not filling this with me, then just keep reading this chapter and keep praying. And I just, I need to do the same. Like, I just like, God, give me your heart in this. Like, help me to feel the weight of this. The suffering of people around us. So we fight to end the heinous prevalence of sexual abuse. But then number two, we fight to end, because of that, we fight to end the destructive effects of sexual abuse. Clearly, this impacts a person at a physical level. There can be pain, injury that would be maybe including but not limited to bruises, broken bones, STIs, STDs, nausea, vomiting, headaches, loss of appetite, loss of sleep, stomach pains, and yes, possibly pregnancy. But it's not just about the physical aspect of this violation. I mean, as I'm thinking about what sexual abuse does to a person, I can only conclude that it is vandalism of the body and the soul. Vandalism of the body and the soul. Listen. Emotional and psychological consequences can be as far-reaching as shame, self-blame, guilt, embarrassment, anxiety, stress, fear, anger, confusion, denial, depression, despair, Social withdrawal, nightmares, flashbacks, panic attacks, extreme dependency, lack of trust, various phobias, hostility, aggression, sexual effects, shock, impaired memory, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And by the way, I only listed 50% of the list. Wow. This is what we see. In Tamar's story, the key verses are in verses 12 and 13, where she appeals to her brother with both reason and morality. This, this thing should not be done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? Shame is one of the greatest consequences for Victims, because of what has happened to them, they carry this internal sense of being disgraced. Shame isolates us. It it makes us hide. And, And the twisted, intense irony of this story is that Tamar is clearly a woman of honor. Like she's going in to serve him. She's going in to love him, to care for him. She's concerned about the honor, not just of herself, but also his honor. Amazing thought. In the moment, in the heat of the moment, she's concerned about him. As well as the honor of the land, which, by the way, is a way of saying the honor of God himself. She is a virtuous woman, a righteous woman, a woman of integrity, a woman of of honor. But 
in her honor, she is shamed. Then she is violated. Verse 14, have you, have you ever had something that belongs to you taken from you? I remember when I was a, a kid, about 12 years old. Long story short, my dad was a basketball coach. He was very successful. There was a group of parents that didn't appreciate his decisions, and so this one parent just started to orchestrate. I mean, he had resources, and so he just started to orchestrate all of these vandalisms against, you know, acts of vandalism against our family. I mean, expletives written on the, the, the street outside of our house, uh, something thrown through our garage door window, uh, garage window. Um, and then when we went on vacation, we, we came back, and... Um, this, uh, this drawer was removed from my, my father's dresser. Like, no other valuables in the house, like mother's jewelry, you know, TVs, like nothing else was taken but just this drawer that had his father's wedding ring and had all of these valuables that he loved so much. And I just remember feeling for my dad, but also this happened to my family. I just felt, felt a bit violated. Someone like, someone... To, against our, our will, took, took what belonged to us. And these are just mere possessions. These, these are things that, that at the end of the day, at the eternity, that don't really matter. But a woman's innocence, a woman's honor. The Holcombs say this, sexual assault is a massive violation of the physical, psychological, and personal boundaries of another person. The acute damage of an assault stems not only from the denial of the victim's will, but also from the violation of the body's physical boundaries. She was shamed. She was violated. It goes on in verse 15 to say she was hated. Just how perverse and twisted our hearts can be. He loves her. He wants to be with her. But then, because it's just pure lust, after he violates her, it says he hated her more than he loved her before he committed this act. She was then rejected, put out from his presence. And what we see in verses 18 and 19 give us a picture of utter humiliation. It says that she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. But afterwards, in verse 19, it says that she put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud. You see, a headdress for a woman was a, a symbol of, of, of honor and, and virtue. But, but ashes were a symbol of lowliness, humiliation, and disgrace. And then it's, it's, it's doubly uh, emphasized and intensified by the placing of her hand on her head. It's, it's a symbol of, of grief and shame and tragedy. And I think this is why. I'm still learning about all of this. But I think this is why. So many victims, because of their utter humiliation, they decided it's better to keep it to myself than to have to face the reality of other people knowing what has happened 
to me. Even this week, I was listening to a, a pastor, his name is Scott Smith, who uh, was telling the story of his wife, that, that it was 10 years after they were married that she shared with him her own story of sexual abuse. But, but then, listen to this, but then it took him another 17 years to tell his own story of what happened to him as a seven-year-old boy. Shame, violation, hatred, rejection, utter humiliation, uncontrollable grief. And verse 20, maybe in a way, sums it up by saying, Tamar lived a desolate woman. Alone and empty. Without support. Moving forward. And so... These are the destructive effects of sexual abuse, which should surely motivate us, church. Like, I surely motivate us to do something about it. That's the hope of today. That's why we're not just awareness, not just agreeing that this is, this is heinous, this must stop, but actually doing something about it as we have opportunity. And so let me give you four ways, I hope four ways, that as we see her story, because what, what happens, you know, Scripture gives us positive examples, you know, Jesus, number one, like, but there are many positive examples in Scripture, but there are many negative examples as well. And the response in this story is not hope and healing for Tamar, it is silence and shame. She's silenced by her brother Absalom, and she is also then further silenced by her own father, the king, David who doesn't speak up for her, who doesn't advocate for her. And so how can we, how can we be part of a better story? I want to I offer four quick ways that we can move from me to, to we will. From me to to we will, okay? Number one, we will be proactive, we will be proactive to minimize occurrences of sexual abuse. The unwritten failure of this story is what's recorded in chapters 11 and 12. King David not only commits adultery with a mother, another man's wife, but he has that man killed. The moral backbone of his kingdom and his family was fractured. And so just, let's just own this. Can we just own this? Because we live in a hyper-sexualized culture. Can we just own it by saying, like, let's first just, like, strive for purity in all areas of life. That's being proactive. And in our hearts of, heart of hearts, like, we may not want to hear that because, no, it's not easy, right? But, like, in our heart of hearts, we need to strive to be pure in all areas of life. And we need to treat sex as a gift from God. That's what it is. It's not a commodity. It's not entertainment. It's not for one person's selfish ends. It is an act of love. It is an act of unity. It is an act of harmonious peace between two people as God ordains it right. So... As C.S. Lewis, like, just, thinking about, just thinking about the hypers, like, can we just talk about the pornification of our culture? Like, we don't even have time to get into it. 
We just don't even have time to get into pornography and and, and all of the, the rampant sexual immorality that is in our land and in our world. And yet, as C.S. Lewis said, listen to this, we mock honor and virtue, and then we are shocked to find traitors in our midst. Wow. Pursue purity. Be proactive. Help men and women, but particularly men, live, if I can say it, Jesus-esque kind of lives. Like, Like, men living like real men. That aren't after their selfish desires, but they are honoring, protecting, loving, yes, serving, oh, even dying for, come on now, women. Read the Gospels. Jesus elevated women in his culture again and again and again. Jesus did what others would not do. And we will be proactive in other ways. We'll take practical steps, right? We'll, we'll, we'll practice proper boundaries. We'll create and place ourselves, and especially our children, in safe environments. That's why we background checked every single one of our Redemption Kid volunteers. That's why we have a secure check-in and check-out process. That's why we have other policies and procedures to create a safe environment for our kids. Be proactive. Thank you. Be proactive, but then when necessary, we will be also responsive. We will be responsive. Though it may have occurred yesterday or decades ago, for you, let me just speak to you if you've been a victim of abuse. Number one, or number two in this list, we will speak up on your behalf. Where Tamar was failed, by being silenced and further shamed, we will speak up for you. We will advocate for you. We will go with you to report any and every instance of abuse. This is where, as we know the history of Boston, where the Catholic Church failed and suffered so miserably, not only were over a thousand children sexually abused by 249 priests, but it was covered up. It was just covered up. If, if you're from here, if you've lived here long enough, like conversations, you will have conversations with people who were victimized or no victims' families. A thousand kids. And the church just covered it up, and lawyers just covered it up, and even families, maybe because there was such shock, disbelief, fear, they either didn't know or didn't speak out. But let me say this, and let me say it loud and clear. This is not just the Catholic church. This is the Protestant church as well. Churches like Redemption Hill, evangelical churches. A church in Chicago massive celebrity pastor. Early retirement forced because of multiple accusations of sexual abuse against coworkers and people 
in their church circles. So, so we, just don't, we just don't say it with a haughty spirit around here. We just don't say it like any person in the room, including myself, is above something that evil. Only the grace of God keeps us from sin. And I'll just take it as like if any pastor, if any pastor in this church, like if any leader in this church, if any member in this church were to ever do anything like that, report it immediately. Report it immediately. We will speak up on your behalf. We will serve you with compassion. We will listen to you, cry with you, and walk with you no matter how far Restoration's Road takes you. We will love you with the love of Christ. We will make sure you get pastoral and professional counsel to help you breathe again. And most of all, most of all, we will point you to the healing and hope of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Oh, listen to this. I'm glad you're listening. Jill, love it. We will point you to the hope and healing found in Jesus Christ. Jesus, I know of no other God who entered our brokenness. I know no other God who wept at the the side of his friend's grave and, as one pastor said, hates death and hates, hates the effects of sin and hates sin itself with the fury of a thousand sons. Think about that. The fury of the, God hates it. Jesus hates it. He hates what happened in 2 Samuel 13. This is why Jesus was called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One who was despised and rejected. And even, even on the cross, what does it say? That Jesus, for the joy set before him, went to the cross despising its shame. Perhaps you've never thought about it in these categories, but Jesus was not only spat upon, was not only beaten uh, almost to death, okay, but he was stripped naked, utterly humiliated. Yes, you could say sexually assaulted in his death. We have a God who cares. We have a God who gives hope beyond our current status circumstances, and forever. So I just want to end with these words. When Jesus, and this is the invitation, come to Jesus. Come receive help from Jesus. Come receive hope and healing from Jesus who can give you what no one else can give you. Because when Jesus, listen to this, you may not know this, but when Jesus started his public ministry, He stood before people and he unrolled this ancient scroll found in Isaiah 61. And when he read those words, this is what he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. God has anointed me. Are you ready for this? To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. If you're brokenhearted today, Jesus came to bind your broken heart. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the, of the prison to those who are bound, to comfort all who mourn, to give them a beautiful 
headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. This is our God. He is our healing. He is our hope. He is the one that we cling to. He is the one that we journey with as we journey together through all of life's twists and turns and tragedies. Our God is here and our God cares. And so what I want to do is I just want to lead us in a time of prayer. I want to ask you to to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. And just to, just to like, I know today is like a weighty, weighty message about a weighty, weighty topic. And so I think we just need some, some time here to pray before we sing. The music team can come forward as we begin to pray. But, but just in, in the quietness of this moment, I just want to ask you as, you, as you bow your head and close your eyes, do you need to break the silence of your shame? Do you need to break the silence of your shame? Do you need to receive the healing power of Jesus? Will you welcome others to walk with you on Restoration's Road? This is our prayer for you and for all of us today. And you might want to write on a Connect card in a bit, hey, I want to talk to a pastor. You might want to email us. You might want to message us. You might want to like hang around. I will hang around. I will be the last person to leave today. I will be the last person to leave. Let us know how we can help you and serve you. God, oh God. We ask that you would give us your eyes to see hurting people around us. That you would make us people of love and trust. That, that, that people would, would, would feel comfortable coming to and sharing their, their deepest, darkest secrets and burdens in their life. And so God, we just pray for freedom in this place. God, we pray that the chains would be broken in the name of Jesus, that people would say, hey, I've been carrying this for far too long, and today I am saying no more. God, would you bring your comfort? Would you bring your healing? Would you bring your mercy? Would you bring even, yes, in due time, your gladness and your praise? to every person who's been affected in any way. And God, may you make the rest of us supporters proactively, responsively ready to love and support everyone that you bring our way. All for the glory of your name because you are a great God and because you write better stories and because there is something better to come because of Jesus. We pray in his name.